Welcome to the Untrustables Podcast. I'm your host, Daryl O'Donnell. Today we're talking digital product passports with Dr. Suzanne Guth-Arlovsky. Suzanne advises numerous groups, uh, ranging from the Global Battery Alliance, which we'll talk about, uh, the United Nations, the European Union, the Towards Sustainable Mining Initiative, and she even has bumped into, in a couple of projects, our prior guest, the Energy Mines Digital Trust with Nancy Norris and Kyle Robinson. She's focused in right now, having come from the entertainment industry, switched over to start working on, you know, when the initial words of the Green Deal were bouncing around, how we could actually start applying these technologies that we have in the way of self-sovereign identity, decentralized identity, credentialing, uh, decentralized identifiers to ESG and similar areas. We get into a whole bunch of different detail. Uh, We do cover that uh, entertainment uh, piece as well and how her slide into the supply chain really kind of made a ton of sense. Um, We got a little bit into Chokepoint Capitalism by Corey Doctorow, talked a lot about standards, how hard they are, um, how you can definitely take different standards and align them because we have a whole bunch out there. Um, And depending on where you are, you may need different things. I think you're going to find this one interesting. Suzanne, welcome to the Untrustables. Um, when you and I have been talking, one of the reasons I reached out is is you've been working so much on digital passports, um, specifically with uh, groups like the European Commission, European Union. I may have that slightly wrong. Um, United Nations, I know you're a specialist advising them, uh, as well as the Global Battery Alliance, all of which are pursuing digital product passports and supply chain solutions. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, for having me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Awesome. So one of the things you're known for is kind of creating the uh, the, the the term of a digital product passport. Um, we've, we, we'll make sure in the show notes and stuff we link to some of your papers, some of the work you've, you've already done. But I wanted to back up and, and ask, you know, what drove the thinking that turned into the digital product passport? What was the earlier thoughts on, like, where did it come from? It's one of the things we haven't discussed before. Um, so um, the digital product passport term is not coming from me. It's coming from the European Commission. They have actually put it uh, at the first time into the uh, new battery regulation, uh, which was just ratified last year. Um, and from there, it was more and more used also in other regulations, uh, very prominent now in the Eco-Design for Sustainable Products regulation, where the digital product passport is defined as an instrument for um, a couple of product groups um, where the product passport will be um, mandatory to place those products on the European market in the future. So um, I, I did not have to do anything with the term, but I think um, I have a lot to do with the decentralized kind of setup of the digital product passport because that's kind of the first time that the European Commission has decided also to uh, not make a central system um, or set up a central system for regular uh, regular compliance, but um, to um, have a decentralized setup of the system so that everyone actually keeps 
um, the control over the data that they provide for the digital product passports. And here I come in where um, I've been doing the first technical concepts, how this can actually implement it uh, on a decent, in a decentralized way. And this is, I guess, where I did uh, the very first publication that's actually out there in 2021 um, about the, uh, the concept based on decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials to implement the digital product passport. So that's an interesting path. It's, it's interesting just as a, I mean, it, it, I, I love dealing with groups all around the world. Um, we have different views. A lot of what we, what I see when I look at what the European Union does, a lot of it is centralizing and nationalizing in comparison, just in comparison mm -hmm. to a continuum where, you know, Canada and the U.S. live. Um, we tend not to like that at all <laughs> in, in, in Canada, U.S. It's only done when absolutely necessary. But to understand that, you know, that, that, the, that the European Union has looked at the problem and said, hang on, even if we tried to centralize this, my hunch is this. If we try to centralize this, we will only capture the largest of the large because it's expensive. Um, it, it, it's in, and there's a control point at which manufacturers will just simply say, no, we're not doing this. To hear that they're they're learning and recognizing that the decentralized approach is hey put it, put the um, control where it belongs. I know the European Union uses a uh, concept of subsidiarity, which is subsidiarity is putting the decision where the information lies. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in this case, they they've recognized that they can only control so much, but going decentralized. So. When you were doing that work back, and you, said you wrote the paper in 2021, so I imagine, you know, for time before that, you were working, was, were you working in supply chain? Were you, work, what drove the, hey, here's how we could do a product passport or this thing that became, was now called a product passport? What drove, what drove that? Yeah. Um, so it's probably, I have to start a bit earlier where um, I was always in IT security topics and um they ha always had to do obviously with cryptography. So and to, through my entire career, I was working on business problems that needed cryptography, if you want. So I was working um, for the entertainment industry and I did digital rights management systems, you know, to control okay. the licenses over content. And, and at some point, the blockchain topic came up and I had a view on that because it's all based on uh, cryptography and, and operations, uh, cryptographer uh, operations. And um, so I followed the blockchain discussion and then moved to the blockchain topic kind of first of all. Um, and then I'm specialized into decentralized uh, identities and verifiable credentials. Now being at a point where for that concept, we actually do not need a blockchain anymore, not, not necessarily yeah. anymore. Um, but still, we have a lot of cryptographic um, transactions here to secure um, the, the, the yeah, transactions to make information verifiable and so forth. So this is all happening with digital signatures. Um, and then, um, of course, also maybe five to six years ago, when I, when I changed from the entertainment industry to, to this topic, it was because I wanted to, um, you know, bring all my knowledge um, into an area that has a better impact for, for nature and for the problems that we have. So I was looking into the Green Deal a lot and the actions that came out of the Green Deal. And one of it is now uh, obviously the, the battery regulation 
um, and to make electronic vehicles more sustainable. So I looked into it quite early uh, and then thought when I wrote it, I thought this is actually what we have to do with verifiable credentials based on, you know, or using decentralized identities. Um, and yeah, I just wrote it wrote it down and um, also joined all the respective uh, discussion groups. There were dis early discussions groups around Catena X and in the Global Battery Alliance and all kinds of industry discussions, but I joined um, and presented the idea um, also in different research projects such as Surpass um, and the Battery Pass um, project and so forth. So I think um, this idea was also picked up. Um, and now we see it in a lot of specifications and recommendations how to implement the digital product passport. That's awesome. There's a similar path for myself, for me, that uh, um, around 2016, 17, when SSI, decentralized identity, started to bubble around, it kind of broke my brain because I was running very different world of special operations, first responders, search and rescue softwares, and identity was always a hard cost for me and I didn't want it to be a cost. It didn't, but because we were using it in such a weird way, the typical identity solutions didn't work. So what was effectively impossible or brutally hard to do became feasible and actually really quite easy when um, decentralized identity bubbled in. So you've mentioned, so one of the groups you're advising is the Global Battery Alliance. And you just mentioned this green deal and the EV side. One of the cool things that I've seen is as we work in digital trust ecosystems is a lot of the stuff is great ideas. Everyone has, hey, let's go do this. Let's do, do. It's almost, I would use a term, I use the term sometimes of it's a science project. It's like, hey, we're playing, we're having, we're checking out how it could and would work. Mm -hmm. But something has to happen for it to actually become real. Mm -hmm. Can you give you a story of, you know, what, what, how was the, concept of what became the Global Battery Alliance. I think you mentioned it in prior discussions we've had that uh, World Economic Forum came up with an, the, the, the concept, but then things kind of changed more from just a concept to let's do this. Yeah, Can you I mean, give us background on that? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the Global Battery Alliance um, was founded um, in 2017 by the World Economic Forum. And um, the idea there was, you know, to, to form a group that can help establish a value chain that's more sustainable for batteries than it was at that time. And um, at, in that, that year it was um, established. Today we have uh, 150 or more, even more members of the Global Battery Alliance um, that are actually representing the entire uh, battery value chain from the beginning to the end. Um, and there are a lot of working groups um, in the Global Battery Alliance that try to tackle those issues um, completely um, and that work on, on different areas. Um, for example, um, last year uh, um, in January, there was the, the battery passport that was shown from the Global Battery Alliance with a lot of stakeholders um, of the industry, with OEMs involved, um, so car manufacturers involved, showing their first um, battery passports. So um, that, that's actually the story. Yeah? We started in, in 2017 um, with today having everyone on board to actually bring solutions live and further and further develop it. So we have a first wave of pilots that launched in 2023. We'll have a next phase of pilots um, planned for this year and just you know further improve on what we've done 
um, to make sure we have something ready when the battery uh, regulation comes in um, um, uh, and is mandatory, which is on the 18th February 2027. So by then, um, the industry and all the members have to have a good idea of how they can comply to the new battery regulations, what they have to do. And this is where, of course, we're helping the members to do so. That's kind of the activities we're doing. Am I correct that, you know, when, when, when that deadline is hit, and I know there are earlier deadlines as well mm -hmm. for progress, but that when, they, when you hit February 2027, if you don't have a, a viable battery passport in your manufacturer mm -hmm. and you're, you don't have this, can you ship your product into the into the EU? You can't. Right. So we, we look at the one of the statements I make to a lot of our clients is, you know, there's 100 things we could do, like literally 100 different initiatives, when that, especially when you're looking at um, the, what the WEF was looking at with batteries is the value chain is it's enormous from carbon through to all the way through to passports and many other projects. Only three or four are going to matter in the earth. But then you have to figure out, how do I know which ones? My understanding is when the, the EU dropped the regulation, it just became a, okay, we have our answer. We must do digital product passports. Exactly. And that's actually what also drove the activity. And we also have the eco-design for sustainable products regulation for other product categories, yeah, such as a green steel and textiles, um, very likely coming next. Um, and then other recommended product segments, which will be coming, but we don't have a deadline there yet. So um, the energy in the market there, in the industry there, is much less than it is in the battery industry because we have a deadline. Um, you know, you cannot place your product on the market, as you, um, you know, mentioned. And, and therefore, the industry is ramping up and things are happening. Um, money is invested, projects are started. Um, and I don't see that too much in the other product um, segments yet. Um, but as soon as the delegate acts come out for those product segments as well, which I think uh, would be, I don't know, I don't want to say something wrong, um, but are coming up as well. Um, so then once we have a deadline, you can also see uh, activities there, I guess. Yeah. But you need a deadline. You need well, something, you know. You, you need <laughs> something. I look at it as, and, and the driving force behind the deadline is when a company cannot ship into a very large customer base, that's an existential threat. Mm -hmm. I mean, their existence is at risk because they, they've literally lost access to a market. What's interesting for me is as you look at the green steel, the textiles and other industries is they're not going to be blazing the trail. When I say blazing the trail, I mean, they're not the first one through. Global Battery Alliance is kind of showing this is how you do it. Obviously, a battery is different than textiles and different from steel, mm -hmm. but the pattern is very similar. You're going to have subtle differences and very big differences at a detail level. But the path is, well, we need to know your product. Do you have a digital product passport? Yes or no. Mm -hmm. What's behind that may change, but the patterns are going to be quite similar. So they'll at least have a good um, example to, to follow on that. Exactly. And um, there's also a couple of activities from the European Commission, especially the standardization activity that has just been kicked off in December 2023, which is the JTC24 which is led by Senselec, which I'm also participating, where those general standards for digital product passport um, should be developed. So a general Good. digital product passport system um, should be specified that can then be adopted to the different product categories. Yeah, And of course, a textile product has different 
vocabulary requirements than a battery or a steel. But, you know, how you get to that information, what are the exchange protocols, what are maybe the identification schemes and so forth, those yeah. um, um, those parts can be the same and must be the same because otherwise we have a big problem. Um, for example, if you, uh, for example, you, you're um, an aluminium producer, for example, and um, you put your your product into um, paintings and coatings yeah, for cars. Um, you yep. have it in in in, uh, in batteries, maybe even um, even in toys or or yeah, textiles. Yep. Um, then you have a problem that you have different systems and different approaches yep. in each of these district. And this is something what the European Commission tries to avoid. So the basic system should be the same, adoptable to different product categories. And that's also another reason why the decentralized approach works. Because you can do your job as the, as the aluminum, aluminum producer mm -hmm. um, in, in various forms, but it's you're just feeding into the broad worldwide system. Each ecosystem would then pull its own. Okay. I need to know about, cause you're an additive to, to paints and tints. Yeah. Great. Terrific. I'm doing structural or I'm doing aircraft. Great. Aluminum. Great. It's not wildly different for the manufacturer, which means that they can afford to do it because otherwise they won't do it. They, they, there will be a point at which you simply say, I, it's not economically feasible. <laughs> we will no longer track this, which is not a good thing. Exactly. And I think companies are already today struggling with a lot of reporting they have to do for regulatory compliance. And we see more and more regulations coming up. Yep. Yeah, We have a due diligence act. We have um, um, green claims act coming up uh, in, in Europe. We have the um, inflation reduction act in the US. We have regulations also <clears throat> in China. So we have yep. to do something that people can still produce what they want to produce and not only report. Yeah, what, one of the things we've seen is, you know, board level discussions about compliance being, um, it, it's not growing, the cost of compliance is not growing with the business, mm -hmm. it's growing with regulation, which is piling on and ratcheting up. It's not, you know, the size of your business, the revenue, the, the overall asset base is not what's driving it, it's regulation. So people need to get their heads around, how do we back up and, and, and fulfill our role? Mm -hmm without crippling our company. If you look at uh, just the, uh, we do a lot of uh, work in FinTech and banking, banking compliance costs have gone up like three times, not 3%, yeah. three times over the last yeah. 10, 20 years. And it's out of, it's out of whack. It's just the operational cost is huge. Um, jumping topics. You, 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 you mentioned that, you know, one of the reasons you jumped from the, the media, actually would, towards the end, I would like to actually jump back to digital rights management um, perhaps if we have time, but you mentioned that it was part of this was about, uh, uh, you know, looking at, you know, what's better for nature, what's more sustainable. How do we actually do, you know, what I would, I, I would actually lean all the way to regenerative type of things. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you and I've talked about in the past is in some spheres, like in the finance world, in the U S wall street, um, the term ESG environmental, social governance, it's a swear word. It's a bad term mm -hmm. um, for some. There are states down that if, you, if someone is claiming to do ESG-centric investments, they can no longer do state and municipal bonds, meaning they cannot participate in the standard finance activity, standard business of, of running a country. Mm -hmm. ESG is, is an area that I, I look at it as really required. It's, it's helping us all level up. 
But because the data driving it are so poor in most cases, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to poke holes at. How do you see, one, your view on ESG and how do you see the digital product passports and the supply chain work you're doing improving that data quality, which should hopefully improve the reputation of of ESG? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, when you first said that to me, that ESG is a bad word in the US, uh, it made me it made me really think because it's not the case in Europe, as at least not in my bubble. Uh, it's used everywhere and it's something to consider and something very important um, that every business actually has to uh, have in mind um, too. And it, for me, it, it covers kind of um, the approach to have a sustainable business, um, to, to build products, but, you know, at the same time, to protect the environment and the UN, you know, um, uh, sustainable development goals. That what well, that's what ESG is for me. And if you say it has a very bad reputation in the US, then we have to ask why. Why is that the case? Yeah, and and maybe have there been fraud cases, um, uh, and have there been you know has there been fake news and fake information um, about uh, ESG information? And if, if that's the case. Um, we both know that um, with you know verifiable information, we can increase the quality of um, of the information that is underlying these these ESG figures or ESG scores. I don't know exactly uh, what you were referring to there, but that's exactly what we're trying to do, right? We ma- we want to make um, um, the ESG scoring transparent first of all, so that you understand what are actually the indicators going into such an ESG score or um, you know, yeah, um, uh, some kind of quality seal. And um, the second, where does the data come from? And is it uh, is it trusted? And then around that, you know, you can build up an entire governance model. And it, as soon as that's transparent and you say, you know, not everyone can issue that data. It has to be a trusted company or an accredited company, for example, to calculate the carbon footprint. Um, um, and you know, I have a list of companies that I trust and here's the trust list. And therefore, if it is being calculated by someone on that list, then I can trust it. And then you can put it in your score, um, and so forth. So it depends really on uh, the governance and the system that has been built, um, around those figures and, and scores. And I think we're just at the beginning to build them up. Yeah. Um, and that's also some of the work that's currently been done at the Global Battery Alliance, which, which is not ready yet. Um, but um, they also, you know, want to establish a system that is trusted and transparent so um, that we can have more trust into an ESG score. As you know, I'm one of the founders of the Trust Over IP Foundation. That's not for profit, but it's about establishing these ecosystems, about getting the governance frameworks in place that let you create that whole value in the ecosystem. One of the problems we have is that everyone wants to jump immediately to heavily audited gold standard in an area where there are no standards. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we, we've spoken with the Energy Minds Digital Trust that's in, a, in an earlier episode. And one of the big things they're working on is that towards sustainable mining initiative, which to me is a really great start to, to um, getting some answers to these ESG type of questions. Mm-hmm which is that a lot of their reports, I believe all of them, are sort of self-attested, self-asserted, mm-hmm. meaning they'll indicate here's how we are meeting the, the needs for tribal and indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Here's how we're meeting our carbon footprint. Here's how we're meeting our water quality. Those types of reports are self, self-asserted, 
which is a starting point. A lot of people say, no, 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 we must have audited, which raises the bar, raises the cost to an extreme level before you've proven value. What we want, what's nice about starting with governance of a simple digital trust ecosystem, what we call a minimum viable ecosystem, is you get the ball rolling. You say, okay, listen, we're going to self-report on these. Um, the minute value is seen, now you start to level up saying, I'm going to actually need to see an audited report of that, which means, okay, cool. We know that this report here is valuable. Show us the data. Show us that transparency all the way back. But you don't try to come in and say, this is how it happens, just soup to nuts. We have to do all of these things. I can imagine with Global Battery Alliance, with all of the initiatives, which you've listed just a few, if they said we have to be complete on all of them before we, before we launch, it would never happen. You need to show progress. And I think that's one of the cool things that I'm seeing from watching what the Global Battery Alliance is doing is digital product passports are one thing which I want to jump to a topic which relates because you just hinted at it that, you know, carbon tracking, carbon scope, you know, scope one, scope two, scope three, carbon tracking is hard. Mm -hmm. But to your point, we don't have the definitive answers. And proof of that is if you look at the regulated carbon price, it's going up, right? It's because it's part of regulation. If you look at the voluntary carbon market, the price has fallen through the floor, um, you know, with COP28 recently, it, it actually was below a dollar. Um, it was at 20. People were hoping it would go higher and it's gone to below a dollar. The reason, to your point on transparency, there is none. There are standards that don't make any sense. There are players that are in conflict. So, so I'm excited to hear about the, the Global Battery Alliance is looking and considering carbon, but I imagine it's not necessarily their problem to solve, meaning they're not the ones setting the standards that they want to adhere to. Are they able to find good, solid standards that meet a really rigorous process? Or are we kind of looking at the industry saying we need work, the broad industry, not the global battery lines? We need a lot of work there. What do you see? As, so um, definitely what um, the working groups are trying to do, and, and maybe, you know, other people can answer that better uh, that are in those working groups. But of course, we're trying to use standards that are out there that already are uh, respected and trusted. Yeah? You mentioned uh, the towards sustainable mining standard. Um, there is an IRMA yep. standard. Um, um, I know that... Uh, the, the German TÜV is working uh, on the SERA standard, um, and maybe the, just one no one comment of of topic is that also every country, maybe a continent, is perceiving different initiatives as trustful. So whereas yep. the US and Canada maybe want to go towards sustainable mining. Um, others maybe want to go with Irma because they, you know, they have a concept, they know the stakeholders. Uh, and then again, others want to use other standards. So the, the beauty is that this all is, is possible, can do um, without technology. Um, and then um, the I think the Global Battery Alliance is there to help their members understand which of those they can use and which when they comply to them, give them, you know, um, a certain um, security that they met standards or that they even can reach a higher a level or a higher score with kind of that's um, that's what we're doing. But, um, yeah, I, th I think that's all I can yeah, say. So I, 
Yeah, I see the I see. So the the equivalence of of not credentials, but the equivalence of the the an answer. So if uh, you know Energy Minds Digital Trust, uh, you know in British Columbia where where I live, um, we talked in the in the prior episode about the fact that they're issuing really two two different credentials. One is a uh, BC Mines Act saying this is a valid mine in British Columbia. Very, very jurisdiction-centric. But they're also issuing a towards sustainable mining credential. So I imagine the, the Global Battery Alliance, this is obviously just me imagining, could look at and say, listen, we need to know that your resources came from a mining company, a resource company that meets one of the following standards, has a towards sustainable mining credential. Great. The ones in BC will have that answer. Uh, you mentioned Irma. So there, there could be equivalencies, and, and, and one might be higher, a little higher than the other. But I imagine we also need to handle the, I'm in a country that doesn't have this yet. What are they going to do? And my understanding is part of the goal of the Global Battery Alliance is to say, and a lot of the, a lot of the initiatives is to say, we're not here to exclude you. We do want to show you how you play in the game. Absolutely. We want how do you get into the ecosystem? So is there thoughts of how countries that countries and jurisdictions that don't have that answer, how they get to the point where they can actually say, hey, listen, our resource companies, our industries are meeting the bar, meeting or exceeding the bar. But how do we get to that? I think that um, um, we have to decide de- decide um, the rules that then apply, would apply to those countries, um, and um, that maybe additional audits need to be made to actually meet the requirements because the local laws are not so strong. But that doesn't mean um, that the mining company cannot have the same standards as a, a mine in British right. Columbia. So um, I think that's um, that's one role that could be part of of the guidelines and rules saying um, um, if you are a mine in that country, then here is what you have to do um, to make your product competitive and make it, you know, comparable to um, products from other geographies. Uh, So I imagine if you had a mining company that was, you know, the largest, the largest company in the country, they may be on their own, meaning they have to do, audits to a certain level to meet the bar and then they could sell their product into the market. But they also, if they're one of many mines could say to the government, we need you to help here because this lift is too much for us to be competitive. We need you to help raise the bar or perhaps they could even go to, and I know that um, uh, the towards sustainable mining initiative is a global trade group to your point, different countries will have different views of that. They may have an answer over there. That says here's how you get to towards stable mining credentials, whereas in British Columbia the government's saying we're doing that for because British Columbia is a very resource intensive province. That's just a reality. Lots of mining, lots of forestry. Um, it's just the nature of of, of Canada, spe- especially British Columbia. Um, I wanted to jump topics a little bit here, um, and when we had not discussed this at all in the past, but I'm really intrigued. By by your, your you know you're doing your work on the global uh, global battery alliance the United Nations the European European Union European Commission, um, which is on the product passport side. Jumping to your mentioned your past of digital rights management, 
I, I, I looked and I watched a presentation by a gentleman. I can't remember the name. I'll find it and uh, we'll put it in the show notes, um, a presentation from uh, kind of a, a crypto, Web3, digital rights management, artist management. I didn't understand the artist group. I read a great book on uh, the artists and how creators and publishers and all these players play a great book uh, uh, called Choke Point Capitalism by uh, uh, Corey Doctorow, which talks about these industries. And when I read the book, I was floored at how complex music, art, uh, writing, how complex things are on a legal basis. It's almost a, in the IT realm, we use the phrase, as you know, security through obscurity. It, it's, you can't hack this thing because you can't understand it. Well, no, there actually seems to be a business based on legal Byzantine structures that are just confusing. You come from the DRM space, which is, again, news to me. Um, how do you see this same type of approach, like the product passport approach, obviously with different legal implications, applying to digital rights, not digital rights management, but artist, creator, listener rights management? So um, I think when you have um, a music, a piece of music, then that's your asset um, and you want to restrict the rights to play that music um, so that you also get some revenue for producing this music. Uh, I think uh, the digital product passport world is a bit different because you don't do not restrict access to some digital asset really because um, um, you produce a product yeah but the idea is not to reduce the access to the product it's um, to to define access to information about the product um, and to therefore kind of digitize your supply chain better and make actually information flow better, um, therefore be compliant, but also, uh, you know, serve a lot of other um, uh, things that you can do with information, with, which is informing the customer better or being actually informed better about the customer. So that's, I think it's a totally different business behind it so i think it's uh not really comparable other than there is cryptography involved in both use cases more or less see i, I look at it perhaps a little bit differently because because i'm coming at from a from a from a high level i'm 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 very much a big picture person um when i look at things like okay backing up to the global battery alliance which came out of a world economic forum looking at the value chain and how do we explain the value chain to show that it's sustainable, that it's you know doing the right things, that it, it's transparent? There's a value chain in music as well that is utterly obscure. It's opaque. You, people do not. And I, I had no idea how complex it was. So I read the book and then I watched this presentation, which, again, we'll link to in the notes, which showed the flow of, you know, an artist has written this piece. They've done the all of the roles that are played in the ecosystem. To me. The music, the writing industry, a lot of these creator-based industries, they're suffering because the value chain is not understood. Ah, yeah, that's a different that's a different aspect. So the minute it. you understand the value chain, because yeah. I'm looking at going your comment, okay, listen, I've I've sold lithium into the global battery lines. I've sold aluminum into this whatever structure aluminum aluminium plays in, in global battery lines. But I'm getting paid, right? 
It's obvious I'm getting paid because it's a physical commodity. Boom. I'm, yet you have artists who are doing all this hard work and they're getting effectively, you know, dollar fifty-five at the end of the year for hundreds or thousands of hours of work. And you have to go, why? Well, a lot of that is because when they ship their music, they're not getting paid. The value chain is so messed up and the incentives are so wrong that this same big picture pattern that we're talking about in supply chains, obviously it's not a digital product passport, but I can imagine a, hey, tell me about this song. Tell me about it. I want to know, did that new artist down the street that I just saw at a, at a pub here in Vancouver get paid for that? And I will quickly learn, yes, they did get paid. 0.0001% of the revenue. Yeah, and, and that idea is already has already been around and not only for music, but also for videos and, and filmmaking because there's probably even more people involved in that. And there were some ideas around maybe four to five years ago where everyone who had parts of a right about a movie Uh, was put with a percentage on a blockchain. And, you know, as soon as $5 came in from someone who paid for the movie for an online streaming would immediately get, um, you know, paid out of their share from, from this. So I know there have been concepts around. I haven't heard if they're actually been implemented because I haven't been following that anymore. They haven't at scale, not at any particular scale. But I would also say, and this is one of the things we've, you and I have talked about in the past, that uh, I'm a, people know me as a CTO, a chief technology officer type. And we, I rarely talk about technology. <laughs> um, what, what's interesting now about where we are is the technology is sufficiently there that real progress can be made. And I would say that's only been in the last 18 months. But three years ago, you know, pre-COVID, it wasn't ready. There were some missing chunks. Like you'd go to do something. It's like, yeah, I have a puzzle and I'm missing 10 of the, I'm 10% of the pieces. Like I'm just, I cannot build the puzzle. I can't even figure it out. I think there are some initiatives that go on, but I, I mean, let, let, I just think it's really critical that we look at the patterns of success, which you're doing with digital product passports in various different forms and say, okay, cool. Where are the problems that are, are solved that I can use over here in a very similar, but different industry? What in my industry is so fundamentally different that I cannot make progress, I can't learn from what the Global Battery Alliance, what the EU is doing, or, hey, no, I can actually do that type of thing. That's one of the key things we get brought in is to say, hey, here's the madness we're facing. This is where, where our sweet spot is. Total chaos, but there's an inkling that there's a solution. That's where we get brought in. Once we have the overall broad picture of the solution, we step back and then you know people run and build companies based on that. Um, one of the other things that, that backing up again, I'm sorry for jumping around is when I look at the things like, uh, the, the European union putting in the, the EV battery requirements and the answer being a digital product passport at some point, certainly the EU has drawn a very hard line saying in February, 2027, if you do not meet this bar, your product will not enter the zone. And that is, again, as we talked about huge. There are already signals in other industries that say, hey, listen, if you can't prove, and I would use the, 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 you know, the personal credit score is an, is an example. If your credit score isn't this high, you can't get a loan. 
there are initiatives that are saying, if you can't prove your ESG, we will not provide your company with money. We will not invest in you. We will not give you loans. Do you see that, that where the Global Battery Alliance is or, or whatever other activity you're seeing in the European Union, in the UN, um, in other industries that you're, you're touching on, where we're going to get scores? Are we ever going to get to the point where we have a score that all a bank wants to do is say, hey, please meet this bar. I don't want to do all the homework to know if you met the bar. Just did you meet the bar? Do you see scores coming out? I see the need for fast decision making. Yeah. Do you think score do scores help? If if it, if it's a score, yeah, it probably helps. Yeah, it, um, it's a risk a, a risk score percentage a number that everyone understands. So I see the need for fast decision making and making. And if if I'm going to, going to the supermarket, uh, we have something here in Europe now uh, where it shows you you know uh, if you if you buy meat, yeah, is it level A, B, C, D, E? I think it's five levels. So, and if it's the lowest level, you probably don't want to buy it, but you want to make the decision in in a second, yeah? So, um, and therefore I think scores will be very useful for all kinds of products and loans are also products and, you know, or, yeah. Um, so, yes, and um, it, I think it's very important um, that those scores are trustworthy worthy and that people understand what is behind the scores um, and that they're being issued from, you know, an, an official institution um, and also, again, to establish trust. But definitely, yes, I see the need for scores for fast decision making. Also, uh, think of your your buying products to produce. You have pre-products, which you have to buy for your own product. And then um, this also comes with an ESG score, yeah, and then you probably have to add up all the scores to then um, declare your own score for your own product. So for fast decision making, if I can buy that pre-product, I also need some kind of number that everyone understands. Um, and um, the same with the CO2 footprint. Yeah? You, you probably want to aggregate all the CO2 footprints of your pre-product to declare your own and there we need standards, we need trust, um, and we need a system yeah, that, that we can make fast decisions on, definitely. Yeah, I, my, my analogy is when we uh, hear just uh, it's a Canadian example, but going to Costco, it's funny when you go look at, say, steak, for example. It's, it's almost the joke about standards is pick the one you want because some days it'll be an Alberta AAA and then there'll be a U.S. double A beside it. It's like mm-hmm. they're not even all the same. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, but 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 you can understand where it came from, and, and and the value and the goal being you know you want to pick the score. But when I look at the the back to the the comment I made about you know ESG being you know very one it's very difficult, which is one of the reasons why it's got such a stain in in the in the in the U.S. finance industry, which is honestly the one that drives the globe. Right, it's the biggest one. Um, it's due to the messiness of, you know, just calculating from your supply chain. I mean, two levels removed from the company, generally speaking, they don't have a clue. They just don't have a clue and they can't have a clue. They can't get a real good answer until there are some standards that say, Hey, no, listen, I am global battery Alliance level three, whatever that means. 
I'm level one. And I don't know if one is better than three, but somebody in the industry would know. And I just made those numbers up. But being able to get that answer, if you look at how people do carbon accounting of you know, scope one, scope two is fairly well understood. Scope three gets really ugly and it's really vague. Um, I use the term in, in, in my realm of, uh, you know, it's really squishy, meaning it's, you have no idea what you're looking at. You can get whatever answer you want, which is where a lot of the fraud comes from, which is interesting. You mentioned also that um, just on the ESG, especially carbon side, you hadn't heard a lot of uh, negative stuff. My understanding is the largest carbon scam was in the EU. It was measured in like a couple billion dollars of credits that didn't exist were sold. That just attracts the wrong people. Where there is this vagueness, it gets the wrong people involved. But I imagine there'll be companies that we'll be dealing with that will say, hey, listen, we would love you to be a supplier. You see this all the time. Show me you don't have any court cases. Show me your bank letter. When you apply as a small company to work with a large company, the due diligence that they do on a finance basis is quite deep. They're going to need to say, and in order to join our supply chain, you must work with towards sustainable mining and or Irma and or these. If not, you're now a tier two supplier and well, we may get to you, we may not, which is where the change will start to, start to really happen, I think. And that's the reason also behind the scoring uh, is to drive so sustainable change. Yeah, We want to, to drive the industry uh, into a situation where more sustainable batteries, more sustainable products will be produced and that becomes the standard. Yeah, and also where a system where companies that produce more sustainable products are rewarded and are seen um, uh, compared to companies and products that are less sustainable or have you know um, a worse impact um, on on the environment. Yeah, and the 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 what's the what the term for economics is the dismal science. Economists will use the phrase that, you know, we're, we're taking advantage of these externalities, meaning we're destroying the planet, but we're not pricing that in because it's not our problem. It's we're, we're shipping this product. Putting these scores in place allows us to actually fix that problem. Absolutely. The people who don't price in the externalities will be excluded. Uh, exactly. They will be moved out. That has to be the case. Yeah. And, and it's the only way that businesses can really answer Answer, not the only way, but it's a key way where the businesses can answer the call that says, we need you to help fix this damn planet that we're screwing up. They don't have an answer right now. Businesses are like, great, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, I may vaguely know what to do, but it would cost me more than my whole company is worth to solve the problem. So we need to work together on, on, on trying to figure that out. Where do you see the technology, jumping on, on that, let's imagine we get the standards in place. Do you see the technology is sufficient to make progress right now or are there missing pieces? I don't, for, I don't for, think there are missing pieces, really. I think that um, the technology that we have at the moment needs to be adopted for the concrete use cases. And then we will definitely find gaps yeah, where maybe this technology has to be, you know, better fit to already existing technology um, or, you know, we have to have a mitigation path first and then 
the the entire industry will will change in my view at least that's my vision and how they exchange data i think will be become much more decentralized in future than having you know a bilateral connection from one company to the next as you know sit, engineers sitting there setting up a um, secure <laughs> Um, connections and then sending some certain data over. I think that's just also too complicated in the global, uh, the complex value chains that we have around the world today. So I think this is going to change a lot in, in that direction to manage the data decentrally. And uh, then we will find, you know, additional criteria for access um, uh, rights and um who needs to access where and if we have all the technology ready and all the standards written, I don't believe though. So I think it's also a moving target. Um, but um, the better technology or the mature technology will come with the mature use cases. The more we adopt uh, the decentralized technology, the more additional requirements we'll be having and the more specifications will come. But generally, the basic principles and the basic technology, I think, is there. Yeah, I, I agree. We we tend to see a lot of uh, we 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 work anywhere from you know banking, corporate, military through to deep web three, deep crypto type of customers, and different groups are are have different purity levels. Where it's funny, the we'll hear an industry player, you know, a, a, a non web three crypto player say, you know, this stuff doesn't scale. I can't get a I, I can't you know the can't, I can't read the data fast enough. It's like you ever heard of content delivery networks and caching? Because if I wanted to use a content delivery network and caching approach, I really need a quality data source that lets me know definitively when something has changed, which blockchain web three crypto is absolutely the perfect solution for just layer on the existing technology. There's this zealotry impurity in the web three crypto space that says, no, no, it must all be decentralized. They don't even know what they're saying when they say it must be decentralized. It's like, on, on what dimension? If I, if I can go build my own cache and have a lightning fast read of the global supply chain, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a European Union, I'll do it. And if I need to know that I can trust data, I'll prove to you how I can trust the data, going right down to the individual credentials, the ledgers that I need. Um, so yeah, to me, it's your, 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 it needs to be adopted. I would add exercised is, exercised is where we will find the, existing you know where are the real gaps and a lot of them already exist like i said caching is a good example you you mentioned something earlier this is more tech sort of um and then there's been this shift over you know is a blockchain required what's your view on that i think that um it would be nice if we could use a blockchain however i've also experienced um, the extra hurdles that come with using a blockchain. So you need a blockchain network set up, you need it run, it's creating costs, uh, you need governance just around, you know, who can access the nodes, uh, who, who, who can do what, what are the playing rules just for the blockchain network and therefore it's adding complexity. So um, at the moment, we're also looking into setting up um, decentralized identities a lot in DidWeb uh, simply because um, it hasn't it doesn't have that complexity because if you if you control over your own domain then you can put your Did document there um, and use that as your trusted ledger. Uh, 
Um, certainly there are some drawbacks there, which are currently being worked on, where, for example, if you change your the document, then this has to be um, transparent. Yeah? Maybe you have to know what has been my previous key for key rotation to validate uh, signatures that have been signed before you change the keys and things like this. Or, or you lose your domain name. Uh, whatever, yeah. That's even worse. Um, so there's there's definitely um, handling that's not in place yet for for using the web, but it's currently being worked on. There's a combination with Carry, for example, where you put your own little blockchain on your domain that shows kind of the history of your documents and keys and so forth. So um, um, and that's what I meant. So um, when you ask me, is the technology ready? Well, you know. DidWeb is very simple. We don't need a blockchain there, but it has some drawbacks that would come naturally with a blockchain. On the other hand, using a blockchain protocol comes with complexity, as I explained earlier. Um, so um, I, I'm a big fan of starting with something simple, see if it works, and where we have gaps for our specific use case, maybe the specific use case of the battery passport, and then tackle those. Um, and then, you know, develop from there. So uh, I, I like to uh, just bring things on the road and, and then start uh, from there. So, so I would, on the, on the, is blockchain required? I would say the answer you gave is no, but it may be helpful. Definitely. To me, it's what's nice about this is it's no longer a deep science and research thing. It's now coming back to the engineering decisions you know, the business and engineering decisions that let you know what trade-offs must I make? Exactly. I can't have all the answers. You can't. You know, if I want to, this is the, you know, in, in aircraft aluminum, I want to know how ductile, how strong. Those are not the same. There are trade-offs everywhere. So if, if, if I, you know, must have global distribution of key things, a blockchain might be perfect. If I need to have massive scalability and just be dead simple and I don't need if I don't need the extra authenticity, BidWeb might be absolutely perfect. Um, what's neat is uh, at Trust Over IP, again, the, I'm one of the founders of the foundation, there is an initiative right now to work on two things. One is um, DidWeb S, which is kind of taking, trying to blend the two uh, ease of use of DidWeb S and the ubiquity of DidWeb with the security behind some of the principles behind Carry, as you mentioned it. I'm not sure how well that's going to go, but it's interesting to see that they're, they're working on that. Um, what other things, we're just coming close to time on this. What other points would you like to raise about where do you, where do you see that? Let's, let me ask this. It's early 2024. Where do you see 2024 going with your work? What's exciting you the most about what you're doing? I think that. 2024 will be a very tough year with regards to creating um, the standards for the digital product passport. So the digital product passport system standards is where my energy will go into. And um, I will take in the experiences from my work that I do around that um, and that I've done previously um, and also bring it back from, you know, discussions at the standardization groups back into um, you know, the work I do aside that. So I think 
building a first idea of the digital product passport system so that it is open enough to um, work with existing industry standards, um, but also at the same time acknowledge the the beauty and the power of you know decentralized uh, technologies um, is something that that's the, the biggest discussion that we will have this year and. Uh, I think by the end of the year, we have already a good idea of where this is going to because we have to end it in 2025. Mm -hmm. um, but I think um, a lot of people will then look at that work and um, and adopt it for their cases. And it will be adopted for digital product passports that are currently not even under ESBR. But uh, um, that's definitely, I guess, one of the most important things for 2024. And that that standards work one kudos to you for 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 doing that. Um, I've chaired some standards, and I'm actually writing one right now. It's hard. <laughs> um, it it it's hard to balance the 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 business utility. What I mean by that is it needs to be useful against the technical not purity the technical act the technical detail which might overwhelm the business utility. If, if you, 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 you can't get to the finish line in one step, you have to move forward. Um, that 2025 deadline, that feeds into the 2027 deadline. Is that correct? Yeah, there's, there's first of all, you have to show your due diligence in 2025 um, in August, and then the full passport needs to be there in 2027. So um, this is this is another initiative the the European Commission has just um, brought uh, just an, assigned someone who who helps uh, with the um, due diligence schemes and how they will look like. So what we've talked before, there will be also strict guidelines from the um, European Commission um, on the um, due diligence schemes. Um, that will then, you know, end up in someone uh, has to, or companies that want to bring a battery to the market have to comply to those due diligence scheme requirements. And then certain due diligence schemes, such as IRMA, maybe hopefully also the Global Battery Alliance scoring system and uh, towards sustainable mining or a combination of these um, are pointed to. Um, to fulfill the due diligence requirements of the battery passport. So um, that's also an important work that's happening now because it will set, you know, the, yeah, it will set the standards around making, making ESG better, actually. Yeah, that's kind of closing the loop a little bit because um, we need clear system and transparency and trust into those mechanisms. And here's another activity. I'm not involved in that and I'm not a specialist in this, but this is happening at the same time um, also to fulfill the global, the, the, um, the new battery regulation. Well, that's a, I mean, to me, that's a great approach. And I know we're, we're, we're out of time, but the, the putting deadlines on allows you to answer a couple of things. One of which is, is this our problem to solve? And if the answer is no, who is solving it? And we may have to do it for now, but that'll move things forward. To hear you have these, the, the, the EU and the Global Battery Alliance have these two big gates, 2025, 2027 shows. I, I think they're going to make some really great progress. Um, Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us on the Untrustables. Um, 
looking forward to one, hopefully meeting in person at some point in in our lives, or at least seeing you on the various different channels that we have in common. Thank you very much again for the invitation. How do people reach out to you? If, if anyone wants to reach out to you, we'll make sure it's in the show notes, but what's the best way to get in touch with you? It's the best way to get in touch is uh, by LinkedIn. Perfect. We'll make sure we put that, uh, that in the show notes. Thanks again. Thank you, Dara. Thanks for joining the Untrustables podcast. I want to send a big thank you out to Dr. Suzanne Gutharlowski. Big thanks go out to Christine Martin, our producer. Please be sure to subscribe and share. Drop any feedback or reviews on any of the channels you're finding us. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Keep being awesome.